investment. Brought to you by Impact Alpha. Live on tape from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, the show for pragmatic optimists who are creating financial value through positive social and environmental impact. Hi, everyone. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact at the financial technology firm LiquidNet in New York. In San Francisco, I'm joined today by David Bank, editor of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hi, Brian. And I'm also joined by Imogen Rose-Smith, also in San Francisco. And Imogen is a senior writer with Institutional Investor Magazine. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Brian. You're usually with me in New York. How are you enjoying your time in San Francisco? I got to tell you, I'm enjoying the weather and not being there in winter. (laughs) Uh, Although New York now has its charms uh, with blizzard conditions. Anyway, on today's show, we're going to talk about the volatility in the global economy that we've seen this year. David, how do these macroeconomic shocks influence impact investing? Well, wow, Brian, it's been a crazy start to the year. The stock market, I think, is off to the worst uh, start ever. Uh, uh, Oil prices are historic lows in more than about a decade. Commodity prices in general are low. Um, And you've got uh, fears about China's slowdown, rising interest rates. It's kind of every thing piled on top of each other. And in fact, I've been talking to people the last couple of weeks. Well, does this mean, you know, impact investing will rise from the ashes of the global economy or impact investing is a sideshow afterthought that will be forgotten as people, you know, rush to the exits and, 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 and try to salvage what's left of their portfolios? I think on balance or say in the long term, impact investing is fine. I think there's uh, uh, ways in which we can talk about ways in which it actually is sort of the antidote to some of the things that have uh, cropped up as problems in the economy. Um, But, you know, in the long term, everything comes true. In the short term, uh, I don't know. Let's talk about it. Well, Imogen, what do you think about that? Do you think that uh, impact investing is a nice to have when times are good and when times are not so good in the traditional capital markets, that impact investing is a luxury that uh, that we can't afford? I think that's certainly the danger that that is how people perceive it in their investment portfolio. And I think it's important like, not to underestimate the importance of that to people. Like if suddenly you're sitting there and you know, 20, 30% of your value has been wiped off your portfolio and you're thinking, you know, how do I plan for my retirement? How do I plan for my future? Some of these questions don't seem so pertinent. And I think that, you know, a lot of the times impact investing wants to have both sides of the argument. It wants to be long term. It wants to be the thing that people should be doing. And it also wants to be good in the short term. And it wants to be part of the markets and it also wants to be outside of the markets. And what hasn't happened yet is it's not integral to every conversation. And it's hard to do that, as I say, when your house is burning down. And so the challenge that the impact investing community has is how to remain in that conversation, how to be relevant and how to be meaningful, but also not how to sort of criticize the broader investing community for having these conversations, but in fact, or or having these anxieties, but in fact being relevant to it. So I'll give you an example. The um, divest in this community, when we're talking about carbon, when we're talking about the price of energy, things that are really important. And what you're seeing a lot of, and you started seeing it really last year and it's accelerated, is, you know, this sort of 
euphoria on the part of people in the environmental divestment community saying, you know, if you'd divested from oil a year ago, you would have made so much money, which is ultimately irrelevant because that's a cyclical, you know, sort of the weather versus climate. That's a cyclical moment in what's happening in the broader conversation over oil. And so to hold on to that fact as something that justifies what, what invest, investments around energy and carbon divestment is somehow to miss the point and to make yourself irrelevant to the broader community. Okay, so but let's, let's give you the fact that the decline in oil prices is not a function of the sudden um, attention to the, uh, to the climate change crisis. But you can still say if you were coming out of this trough in oil prices, are you going to bet on the carbon economy for the future? Or are you going to bet on the low carbon economy for the future? So it's not a function of what got us to where we are today. But you can thank natural gas very, very much for killing off the coal industry. Sure. But as an investment, it's not so cut and dry, right? Because the at some point, the price of oil is going to go up. So in fact, over the immediate term, coming out of this crisis, particularly if I'm, say, let's say I'm a distressed debt hold investor, I probably want to be holding oil. I probably want to be hold, potentially want to be holding coal. So it's not as easy to say, yes, coming out of this, we should all be investing in the clean economy. Well, what it is a way to say is, hey, there's an opportunity. Oil prices are low. For example, we could put a, price, a, a tax on carbon now, and it wouldn't actually hurt low-income consumers as much as it would when it was $100 a barrel and gas was 4 bucks a gallon, because now we have some room to tax carbon and um, enhance the prospects for the low-carbon economy. So I think there's some things that can be done out of this crisis to position us not just to rebound back to the same old dysfunctional economy we had, but to rebound into an economy that actually takes into account these these longer-term issues which the impact investing world has been pointing us towards. And, and I don't disagree, but I think the danger is, is that the impact investing world oversimplifies the problem. So, and that's what I was sort of saying originally, rather than saying, yes, my God, look at all these problems in your portfolio, how can we help? And I understand that these are complex issues it becomes, see, we told you capitalism is terrible. Let's invest in impact. Nanny, nanny, nanny goat. No, that's obviously probably not a helpful approach. I agree right. with now, that. <laughs> now, David, now, David you're, you're kind of the wild-eyed optimist in the group here. I seem, Imogen, to play, though, I seem to be playing that role, which I like. And Imogen, you're, you're more of our realist. Uh, and you, you spend a lot of your time speaking to institutional asset managers, institutional investors. And when they think about impact investing, what bucket do they tend to put it in? You know, that's a that's an interesting question. For the most part, I think it has been a nice to have. Like this is on the list of things we should be thinking about. All else being equal, in a perfect world, it'd be great if we could do some more of this impact stuff. Or even that but we should consider ultimately it. Like, I need to get my long term returns. Yeah, like I'll give you an example. Okay, low income housing. I think this is a great space. I think it's really interesting. There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of reason why institutional investors might want to look at that. But right now, I'm an institutional investor in real estate. I'm concerned about what is my real estate exposure to tech. It's not number one on my list. And that as we get into these cycles of sort of economic problems, it goes lower and lower and lower down on your list, even though you might argue, David might argue, that these are precisely the things we should be looking at. And I, I don't think that, broadly speaking, the impact community has done a good enough job yet of making the case 
that this should be higher up. Well, here's here's a, here's a good example. I mean, the, the people made this argument, you know, coming out of the 2008-2009 financial crisis that things that had been seen as safe turned out to be risky. You know, Europe uh, turned out to be much more risky than people had realized beforehand. Uh, things that turned out to be risky in that context uh, ended up being seen as safer. Microfinance's finest hour, frankly, was that uh, even when, you know, other borrowers were not repaying their, say, you know, mortgage loans, that small borrowers in, in remote villages were repaying their microfinance loans. And there wasn't really a huge uh, upsurge in, in, in bad loans in, in those markets. And so microfinance started pitching itself as a non-correlated investment that you could, that could actually serve as a hedge in some uh, sense or a, a cushion on, on, the, on all your other investments that were moving in the same cycle, the same market cycle. Now, just wrote something up recently about the conservation finance crowd pitching conservation investments as non-correlated because sort of ecosystem values, clean air, clean water, fertile farmland were seen as somewhat uncorrelated from the broader market swing. And so this interesting argument was, you know, hey, impact is great, but what you really want is something that's going to not uh, go down and up with the rest of the market and maybe these things that are more based in the real economy and the real needs as opposed to sort of the casino economy of the marketplaces uh, might might actually be a, a good investment on the face of it as, as investments, much less as impact investments. Imogen, do you think that these kind of this turn to real assets as an asset class that's non-correlated to the market. Do you think that that thesis was really picked up and believed by a number of institutional investors? For, for impact, no. But I, I mean, I think that this non-correlation argument, you get it all the time, right? It's effectively a marketing pitch. And it's true, right? On the, on the, we take the step back on the big picture. Absolutely. There are things that are non-correlated to the broader market. And absolutely some of the things that are really powerful in the impact investing space, such as conservation, things that are tied to real assets, will over the long term be uncorrelated to stuff like the stock market, although not necessarily commodities and some of these other factors that we're talking about. But it's kind of like, the you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Like, it doesn't matter if you're uncorrelated when all correlations go to one and suddenly my portfolio is blowing up and I have to sell off a bunch of trees irrespective of their price. So I think that there is, you know, at best, a naivety there over not just how capital markets work, but how portfolio construction works. And at worst, a kind of smug opportunism, which doesn't really contribute to the broader conversation. If the, if the point is that impact investing should be all investing, right, that all types of investing have an impact, then impact investing needs to be in the broader economic conversations and recognizing its role in that instead of, again, kind of being like, see, I told you the economy isn't working, so you should invest in prison, prison recidivism. I, I aspire, actually, I aspire to become knowledgeable enough in this field that I can be a smug opportunist. <laughs> in, the mean, in the meantime, I'll just point out a couple of interesting things, which is, you know, there's always been, you know, there are a bunch of reports out about whether impact investing can deliver market rate returns. And market rate returns, and usually, you know, sometimes they're, they're, that's, that's qualified as, as risk-adjusted market rate returns, and that's the holy grail that impact investing should aspire to. Well, market rate returns turn out to be, you know, subject to the market. 
And when market rate returns are much lower than what people have historically said they need to get to meet the hurdle rate in their portfolios, then you open up the opportunities for some other kinds of investments that might actually be attractive in comparison. So when you're only getting you know, 0% or negative 2% or negative 10% in your, in your stock portfolio, you might look at a, some kind of debt instrument that's paying you a 6% coupon year in, year out, and it's not going to give you the 12 or 15 or 20% IRR that a high-flying private equity fund does, but it's going to give you steady returns that you can take to the bank and you can pay off your, for example, you know, pension Pensioners. At what risk profile would that be? And, you know, who is doing the due diligence and the rating on that kind of bond? Like, it, it, like are those kind of mar- bonds, are they are they marketed in the, the same way that other uh, more traditional bonds are marketed? Well, there's and, and if, we're, if we're talking about green bonds, then then in, indeed they are exa- marketed ex- exactly the way they are. And they're they're based on the credit rating of the municipality or the corporation or, or, or the World Bank or whoever's issuing that bond. And therefore, the, the risk profile is exactly what a risk profile is for another bond issued by that same issuer. In fact, in that argument, other than the fact that the proceeds presumably were going to some green project, um, the green is really just a marketing uh, pitch for, for, for getting a little bit of a extra premium on that bond. If you're talking about other kinds of things like lending to uh, farmers to be able to improve the yield of their farms with you know more sustainable techniques and access to market, then you're right. Those things need to have a sort of very you know clear-eyed view of what of what the risks are. My only point being, the risks of something like that might be no higher than the risk of of a you know developed market you know loan that is going to go haywire for some other reason. They're not necessarily two things though. I mean, one thing I think I'm actually a big fan of the asset asset based lending space in general. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think you see a lot of good investing and innovation around there. Why don't you just explain what that is uh, in an impact context, particularly? <laughs> I'll give it a shot. It's it's lending against assets, right? So in a general context, it would be something like you're a grain farmer in Hungary. You've got a ton of grain, but you don't have the money to get the grain to market. You come to me as a bank or another type of lender. I say, sure, I'll lend you the money. I want to hold the grain. I want the grain as collateral. So if in fact it turns out that something goes wrong and you can't pay me back, I have this bunch of grain that I can then sell to market. The, the problem with it, when you're thinking of it as a low-risk investment, is the counterparty risk can be a lot higher. Like, if in fact my grain lender turns out to be fraudulent, that can really be a problem, and that can end up with it as an illiquid asset that really like clogs up my portfolio for years to come. And I know people that that's happened to. So, on paper, it seems like a less risk as risky investment, but that's not necessarily the case of execution. But what's also interesting is you're seeing a lot of hedge fund managers right now go after those kinds of investments, not framing them up as an impact opportunity, but what they're looking for is they're looking for yield. So right now, 6% yield sounds like a brilliant idea. And so you're seeing sort of the traditional alternative investment community start exploring those opportunities, which again, has the potential to be great for the impact investing community if it can broaden up the marketplace. 
where it also potentially becomes dangerous is if it becomes a crowded trade, right? One of the reasons that it's uncorrelated, a lot of impact ideas are uncorrelated right now is because they're not crowded. So there's, you know, there's either side of that. I will take the, um, the, 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 the downer uh, position on a couple things. The, the currency devaluations going on around, in particular in a lot of emerging and frontier markets, will absolutely affect the returns that any investor can re realize if they want to get their money back, you know, into this country. So if you've invested in South Africa, you know, uh, and, and it's a, a great performing investment that helps smallholder farmers um, improve their yields and you were expecting to get your, you know, so your, your loans back and then take them back out in dollars, you know, you've got to do twice as good, basically, as you would have had to do a, a couple of years ago because the currency is worth half as much as it was. And that, that's like a classic example of, again, how can you discount the macroeconomic situation that's going on in South Africa now when you're making these kinds of investments at looking at these kinds of portfolios, which is not to say not to do it, but to have this idea that somehow you can step outside of the broader economic conversation is makes no sense to me and it's frustrating because i feel like impact investing doesn't do itself any service does itself a disservice by doing that but I, the currency risk is huge and i think it also lent, points to another issue which is transaction costs are still too high right because we could have a conversation about how do you hedge that currency risk but by the time i've hedged that risk paid the transaction cost for some kind of bespoke deal i'm taking off so much return that it's not necessarily worth it as an investment irrespective of what the impact is. There's another interesting angle to this. For a while, people were saying, oh, impact investments, like like Imogen said, too bespoke, too, too high transaction costs, too one-off, not large enough. And therefore, what we really need to do is get these impact deals to be sort of packaged up in plain vanilla wrappers that institutional investors can write large you know, checks for and, and, and stick into some comfortable place in their portfolio and not have to worry too much about, about them. And green bonds, for example, fit that, fit that bill. But now people are saying, wow, a low yield environment that for the foreseeable future and maybe the only place to make money is in some complex deal that requires some specialized knowledge or some special insight into where the market's going. And the fact that it's not plain vanilla, it's not mass market actually, is what allows me to get that excess return. It's got some mispriced risk. It's got some opportunity the rest of the world doesn't see yet. And that's where I'm going to make money. So I think those kind of impact insights, if you will, could become valuable in that context. And that's where I think there is a way in which two communities aren't talking to themselves and in some ways that creates opportunities, but I also think it's one of the things that's freezing impact investing, right? That, yeah, what you just described is the investment every hedge fund manager wants right now. I want to put, you know, what do you want to put, let's say, $100 million to work in something bespoke, complicated, involving some kind of yield that I can structure myself. That can be an impact investment, but Wall Street isn't selling it because Wall Street doesn't sell impact investments, certainly not to hedge funds. So these things aren't matching up. And at the same time, there's still this big unanswered question, and I don't have a good answer to this, of how much money is too much money to make if you're an impact investor investment, right? Like if I'm a hedge fund manager- It's like that double jeopardy. You know, you're, you're damned if you do, yeah. damned if you don't. But if I'm a hedge fund manager and I'm looking for that deal, I want to charge farmers in India as much as I possibly can to make as much money as I possibly can before they go bankrupt, right? There's a sweet spot there. And there is a sense that 
the impact investor wants to be further on one side of that than the hedge fund manager wants to be, which is basically true. And I don't think that we've come up with good answers to that yet. I think that's absolutely true. And that's, I think that's a, that's a real danger that will uh, impact the field, so to speak. Um, but I do think that, for example, I mean, I think it's fascinating that commodity prices are so low, that oil prices are so low. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about peak oil. Now we seem to be awash in oil. Commodity prices, you know, we're supposed to be running out of everything. Now we seem to have too much of everything. And uh, in fact, one of the aspects of this, I think that um, is underappreciated really is how the effect of easy money in the last few years has caused overinvestment in a lot of things, particularly, you know, in oil exploration and other things that led to the- can, can a lot of that also be explained by the slowdown in China, at least as far as the commodities? In terms of, de of demand, absolutely. So there's all these things that, that are pointing in that direction. So where are the bright spots in those commodity markets? They happen to be in sustainable, organic, and other sorts of 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 attributes that you can attach to a otherwise totally generic commodity and give it some kind of differentiation for which it gets some kind of premium price. But the other thing that you're seeing is that because oil prices are so low, some of the people who had been investing in clean energies are no longer no longer doing so. For, so for example, here in Berkeley BP had a partnership with the Berkeley Labs to explore some kind of clean energy product. And they've reduced their funding because for BP it no longer makes any sense. And you're seeing a lot of examples where particularly corporations were in fact looking at this and they're now pulling back. So what should seem like a positive isn't necessarily so. That is a big danger. If, if, if low prices for carbon-based energy kill off increasingly low prices for renewable energy were in trouble. But last year was a record, a re still record investment in clean energy, even while oil investments were tanking. So there, it, it's, it appears that while I think there is some effect, it's not the death knell that some people feared. I think that, I think we can all agree, though, that there are in this environment right now, there are opportunities for those who want to seek out impact investments and put together deals that make sense and they can carve out their niches. I, I, would, would you both agree with that? Hallelujah. I'll, I'll sign on to that. Imogen? Imogen is, <laughs> is doubtful, but I think we can bring her over the line, Brian. I think there are. Okay. Well, we'll have, we'll, we'll more discuss on a future episode, but I think that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. <laughs> <laughs> from Impact Alpha. Uh, thank you to uh, David Bank and Imogen Rose-Smith, who joined us in San Francisco. Please be sure to describe to Returns on Investment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please leave a rating, which helps other people find us. For more coverage of the Impact Investing Marketplace, please visit impactalpha.com. And be sure to follow Impact Alpha on Twitter. If you have any feedback for our show, please send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. That's info at impactalpha.com. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. For David and Imogen in New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Until next time, this has been Returns on Investment.